You may be seated. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 14 together. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20 will be our text. Before we go any further, let's pray together. Father, we thank you as we begin that you are merciful. God, we need your mercy. We need your compassion. We need you, God, to look at us and look at our weak condition and have pity on us and mercy on us and, and help us, God. We thank you that you're mighty, that there's nothing too difficult for you. Lord, we often run around as humans thinking that we are invincible and that we are mighty. But neither of those things are true. There's only one true God, and that's you, and certainly not us. And so, God, we are grateful that you are, are mighty. And then, Father, we thank you that you are the thrice holy God. That even as we gathered on this property, there's a continual chorus in heaven around your throne proclaiming your holiness. May we tremble at that thought, God. That you get our attention. God, that should humble us. It should also make us thankful for Christ who made a way, our great high priest, so that we could come to you, Lord, to be made right with you, to come into your presence, to be able to pray. So God, we thank you. We can never thank you enough God, we do ask right now, as we pause on this Lord's day to study your word, that God, your spirit will work in our hearts. Father, I pray right now for the heart that's here that's wayward. They're here, but their hearts are 100 miles away. Father, I pray that your word today and your spirit today will call that one back to yourself. Father, I pray for the one whose heart is hard today. They're just living in rebellion against you and against your word. Maybe not reading your word. Trying to do life on their own, God. I, I pray for that heart to be softened today. Father, I pray for the hearts that are soft today, that you'll continue to keep those soft through your word being read and preached and applied. Father, I pray for the heart that's dead. There may be someone that's here today or many people that are here today or many that are listening today that honestly, they're just dead in their sin. And yet again, in your kindness and in your grace, you have given them another opportunity to hear your word preached, to hear the gospel shared, 
Father, I ask very humbly but yet boldly because of Christ that today will be the day of salvation for whomever I'm speaking of, God. You know I don't know fully. So God, I pray that you'll draw them and call them and give them life today. God, transfer them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. God, help it click in their brain. Help it make sense in their heart, God, that they need you. So we love you. God, I do ask for help for myself. God, may we just see Christ. May we see Christ in the scriptures. The glory of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One thing that I shared with you last week from Acts 14 and verses 1 through 7 was the fact that we've just been seeing this over and over and over again is that with every increasing step from Antioch and every increasing mile that the Apostle uh, Paul and Barnabas take, we have clearly seen that it's continually uh, getting more difficult for them. We've seen differing trials. Uh, we've seen a variety of trials. We've seen a variety of severity of those trials. And when I say that, I'm not trying to minimize the suffering that they may have gone through in each and every one of those because sometimes we have a tendency to compare our situation to other people and think that what we're going through might not be difficult. It, it is difficult, right? It is difficult. So even there are severity of trials that they went through, the reality is every one of those would have been difficult for differing reasons. Let's think about it just for a minute yet again. You have Bar-Jesus that rises up very quickly to oppose Paul's message in order to keep someone from coming to faith in Christ. Praise God, as I prayed, God is greater, amen? Sergius Paulus came to faith in Christ. God will save his people, amen? We should pause there for a minute. God will save his people, amen? Amen. amen. All right, that's good news. And then we saw John Mark decide that he didn't want to be a part of the team anymore. It was just too hard. For whatever reason, he deserted. And then you went on from there, and we just saw how Paul and Barnabas were driven out of Antioch, Pisidia, not the same Antioch that sent them, but a different city. They were driven out of there. We saw that. And then last week in the passage that we looked at there in Iconium, we saw how there were unbelieving Jews that began to stir up trouble and talk about Paul and talk about Barnabas. And, and really, the text talked to us about how it, it really influenced all of the inhabitants of that city in a negative way. And then from there, we saw it get a little darker, a little harder, in that there was a, a plot or a murder attempt. There was a, a desire to not only not listen to them anymore, but to end their life. So that's where we picked, that's where we left off rather last week. And when we come back to our text this morning, I want to submit to you this morning, and this may si sound odd at first, but I want you to hang with me. Because I think we're trying to make the case that this is the hardest thing that they've gone through so far. This is the most difficult trial. This is the most difficult temptation, if you will. 
This is one of the most difficult things that they've gone through so far, what we're about to read about. In fact, it's really easy to read over it, isn't it? Just kind of read over it really fast and, and maybe miss it. So maybe some things that I point out you've not really thought about before. But before we read the text, I, I do feel like I need to say this. When we look at Paul and Barnabas' life, one of the things that you need to get straight is that it's costly to follow Christ. The road is very narrow. The road is narrow. And you have to determine in your heart and your mind with Spirit's help that what you gain in Christ is worth more than what you lose in this world. Let's read the text together. Look with me at verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, which was their heart language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of, of like nature with you, and we, we bring good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet, he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Look with me at verse 8. I want you to notice what happens that's interesting in this story. You know, one of the things that we've learned is that Paul had a strategy, if you will, when he went from town to town. And 
I talked to you about that before and how that was biblical, that they would go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But when you go to verse 8, what's glaringly missing that we've, that we've seen so far when he rolls up into this town in comparison to the other towns? What's missing? Where does he not go first? He doesn't go to the synagogue first. So the question is, why did he not go to the synagogue first? Did he get the wrong address? His GPS not work? Maybe his Google Maps was slow or the app on his phone didn't work. Is that, is that what it was? The answer to that, is, of course, is no. The reason is there was actually no synagogue in this part of the country. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Sorry, Rachel. Oops. It's out of tune now. What do you think about that for a minute? What that means is there was very, very, very little light, Brother Jim, on this region. I'm not talking about sunlight. I'm not talking about moonlight. I'm not talking about candlelight. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual light. Paul and Barnabas went to a very spiritually hard very spiritually dark region see the reason that there were synagogues in these other towns is because with the exile these jews had been scattered throughout these differing regions it was part of god's plan to get those regions ready to hear about who jesus and when you come to lystra there's no synagogue which means that this would have been a very pagan place. But I want you to hear me say this very carefully. Just because there's not a synagogue in the place or in the city doesn't mean that God isn't at work. Amen? God can save people whether there's a synagogue, whether there's, a no, there, whether there's no synagogue. He can save people that are far, far away from him, people that have never really heard of him. God can save anyone and everyone Pretty awesome. So look at the text. Look at verse 8. So they go to Lystra. Instead of going to a synagogue, they run into a man. And the text tells us this man was crippled from birth. And Luke wants us to understand something very important. Not only was he crippled from birth, but this man had never walked. He's preparing us for what's about to happen. He wants us to understand that what we're about to read about is a miracle from God. Well, verse 9, Paul begins to speak. This man is listening to Paul. Paul looks at this man in verse 9. And somehow, in some way, we don't know necessarily how, but the Spirit impressed upon Paul in some way that this man had the faith necessary to be made well. And then when you get to verse 10, we see Paul look at him and say, Stand upright on your feet. And we see that the man does just that. The Lord heals him through the Apostle Paul. Now in your mind, as we're just reading that, you should be thinking back to Acts chapter what? Three. Because it's an interesting reality that it's almost an identical type of story that we read in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John went to the temple to pray 
and there was a lame man sitting outside of the gate. Do you remember? And Peter looks intently at him and says, get up, walk, and he's healed. I just think it's interesting, as I've already mentioned, that God can heal Jews and God can heal Gentiles. God can heal Jews and God can heal non-Jews. God shows no partiality. God can heal people. It's pretty awesome. It's what he does in this text. Now, with the stage set, I want us to begin to focus in on what I was talking about in the introduction, which is they're about to face the greatest trial they've ever faced. When we read through the text, how many of you thought, oh, surely he's talking about verse 20 and 21, where Paul is actually stoned. Like, in the last story, it never really happened. They wanted to, but they never carried out the action. In this part of the story, different city, different town, different people. They do carry out the action. But that's not the greatest trial that I'm talking about. That's not the greatest struggle that I'm talking about. Look with me at the text at what happens. Look with me at verse 11. Notice what the Bible says. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lyconian and notice what they say. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. One of the things that you have to understand about Greek culture is that many of them followed Greek mythology. And so when we read this text, when you studied that in history back in the day when you were in school, or you're studying it now, the Bible does in, intertwine with history because really history is his story, right? It's God's story. And so that's what's going on here. Remember what I told you. The gospel light is very dim here. Very spiritually hard. Very spiritually dark place. The only thing that these people know are, are the gods of Greek mythology. Notice what they do. They naturally say, this must be Zeus, and this must be Hermes. Or if you're reading in the King James, they call Barnabas, I believe, Mercury, and they call uh, Paul Jupiter. Those were other names for Zeus and Hermes. Now, Zeus in Greek mythology was the supreme god. So they call Barnabas the supreme god. And they call Zeus Hermes, which Hermes was in Greek mythology, the son of Zeus and the chief speaker and the chief interpreter of all messages. Hermes job in Greek mythology was to deliver messages that needed to be interpreted or shared with people. So what they are doing is the listen to me carefully. Have you heard us say lost people act like lost people? This is what they're doing. They see this miracle go on. There's no framework in their mind to understand that there's a one true God. The only grid that they have to process what they've just seen through is Greek mythology. And so therefore, what do they do? They apply that worldview to the situation. And they say, okay, Barnabas is Zeus and, 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 and Paul is Hermes. We know because we have a biblical worldview, 
that they've just broken the commandments. We know because we have a biblical worldview that they've just committed idolatry. We know because we have a biblical worldview, we know the scriptures, that they have just com com uh, committed blasphemy as well. It's interesting. Look with me at the text. It doesn't stop there. Look what else they do. Look at verse 13. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. And they wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Do you catch this? Do you see this? Do you feel what's going on here? Paul and Barnabas heal this man. There is no synagogue, but there is a temple to Zeus. And the priest of Zeus in Greek mythology says, Surely the gods have now come down to us. And surely what we need to do is worship them. And surely what we need to do is offer a sacrifice to them. Fact check, reality check. Who's the only one that we should sacrifice to in the Old Testament? And who was the one that Christ's blood was offered to? God. Should we sacrifice to another man? No. Should we worship another man? No. Do you see the escalation of what is happening here? You see the progression of what is happening here? They're treating Barnabas and they're treating Paul as if they are gods. You say, well, Doug, I, I still don't get what you're talking about. Like, why is that the hardest thing they faced so far? Of all the things that they faced, you're telling me that's harder than people talking about you? You're telling me that's harder than someone trying to kill you? You're, try, you're trying to tell me that this is harder than going through a sleepless night, me and all the other things that happen to them, all the other suffering? You're telling me that this is, is more of a, a difficult trial? Well, remember, everyone's dif different and difficult for their own reasons. But this one's different, is it not? Because I want you to think about the flesh. I want you to think about the flesh, your flesh, all flesh. I want you to think with me about Genesis chapter 3. I want you to think with me about the fall of man. I want you to think about the serpent and what the serpent told Adam and Eve. Not only did he say, did God really say, but he also said, you will be like who? God. You see, inside the heart of fallen man, the depraved nature of man, there is a desire that comes naturally from the fall to want to be their own God. So when you come to this passage of Scripture, Paul and Barnabas are made of the same stuff as you and I are. There's a temptation here they haven't faced yet, which is they've been driven out of towns. They've been rejected. They have not been accepted by all. And now they come to a town and they can't do anything wrong. Everybody loves them. 
Not only does everybody love them, everybody has now deified them and everybody wants to worship them. That's an interesting thing. That's an interesting thing. Question is, what are they going to do? And before we move too quickly, and before we don't think that this applies to us, and before we don't think that we don't struggle with the same way, I want you to think back to what Pastor Eric said about the fear of man, Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man is a snare. The fear of man can look like a lot of different ways. It can look like worrying about what people think of you negatively, right? I want everyone to like me or think positively of me, and we could spend our whole lives trying to make that happen. Fear of man can also look like getting caught up with living your life for people's praise. I want people to pat me on the back for how awesome I am. Do you understand what they did to God's power? It's so easy to read over this. Like, there was a guy that was there that had never walked before. They walk into this, ama this amazingly dark and spiritual spiritually dark culture, this pagan culture where there's very little light of the gospel that's there and they heal this man. The people had never seen anything like this before. And on the heels of them having been driven and, so, and ha been driven from the place where they just were, just leaving that place and, and all of the suffering and all of the heartache and all of the things that they've gone through in the flesh, it would have been easy for them to say, you know what? You know what, Barnabas? We finally found a place where they like us. They don't hate us no more. This is amen and oh me, guys. It's both. Because this is the struggle that every one of us have. Listen. I want you to hear me carefully. Praise can be like poison it can be it can kill you now is it good to receive compliments is it good to be built up and encouraged absolutely I'm not saying that we don't do that we need to but if we don't handle that praise rightly and if we don't handle that praise in the correct way like poison it will get us. It'll get our souls. You know what'll happen? We'll begin to we'll begin to believe our own press clippings, and we'll begin to believe that we're greater than we really are. I was reading a little bit this morning in Spurgeon's lecture to my students, and he was telling his students, "Remember, you're nothing because you are nothing." He was like, "Don't ever forget that you're nothing because you're not anything." He wasn't putting them down. He was telling them that their worth comes from Christ, not their ability. Do you understand this? That at this moment in time, Paul and Barnabas, like at no moment in their ministry so far, would have been tempted to become prideful about their calling. Hey, look at us. We're apostles. Wherever we go, people get healed. Isn't that awesome? They would have been tempted to be prideful with their gifting not everybody can do what we do 
And they would have been tempted to be prideful in an overestimation of themselves as well. Thinking maybe that they're indispensable to the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, we're all dispensable. We're all dispensable. Our worth and value is in Christ, but the kingdom of God marches on. So, the question becomes, what are they going to do? With this test, with this trial like they've never faced before, they've never had an entire city praise their name. Never. Jim, I don't even know what that would look like. Maybe it's like a Super Bowl parade now, you know, where they, they take all these floats and the whole city comes together and celebrates like a big sporting event or something. I, I don't know what it would have looked like. But I'm going to tell you something. If your heart's like my heart, it don't take much to get it going in a prideful direction. There's a huge temptation here that could have destroyed them. So the question is, what are they going to do? How are they going to handle this? How are they going to respond? Let's remember. Let's remember what's at stake. Let's remember what's hanging in the balance. It would have been so easy for Paul and Barnabas to make that moment about them, but it was not about them. They weren't there for them. They weren't there for the parade. They weren't there for the crowds. They weren't there for the accolades. They weren't there for any of those reasons. They were there to take the gospel to those people that were far away from God. Think about it. It's hard for us to understand because there's 15 trillion churches in Okeechobee. Everywhere you turn around, there's another church. Churches, banks, bars, and gas stations. I don't know why we have so many of those. But we do. There are places on the, this planet that don't have churches. It's hard for us to understand. This is a dark place. And at this moment in time, if they take the bait that Satan's placed before them, if they, if they begin to believe the hype, if they embrace the godlike status, Jim, if they become celebrity pastors, you know what's at stake? Number one, the glory of God. Number two, the truth. And number three, the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Can I bring it down to our level right now? How they handled temptation mattered, amen? How you handle temptation matters. It does. How you handle every temptation matters, just like how they handle temptation matters. Look at what they do. Look at the text. You gotta love this. Verses 14 through 17 are really like the heart of the passage. I don't know if you're one of those people that mark in your Bible or highlight in your Bible or whatever, but if you don't, you might want to pick up this habit right now because this is amazing. Look at what they do. They don't take the bait. They don't fall into the trap. They don't believe what people are saying. What do they do, Jim? They stick right to the reason why they came. The text says they tore their garments. That's a visible and physical dis uh, display of spiritual agony. They do not like what's happening. They realize the significance of what these people are doing. And they realize the spiritual danger that they're in. 
that they are worshiping and caught up into false ideologies and false beliefs and false religion. And what they need is truth. And they're so twisted and perverted in their thinking that they think that other human beings made of the same stuff of them are actually gods that have come down from heaven. It's crazy. But this is their worldview. So what do they do? They tear their garments they rush into the crowd, and then they say, Why are you doing these things? We're men, just like you. We're bringing you the good news of the gospel, he says. They say, now look at what the text says next. This good news tells you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. I'm not God, you're not God. I'm not God, Barnabas is not God. It's what he's saying. Listen, we're not God. There is a God. And we've come to tell you about that God. Because what you're believing in is keeping you in spiritual bondage. In fact, Paul says it's vanity, it's, it's vain things, it's things that are empty. One of the lexicons that I was reading said that it's the equivalent of chasing your shadow. You remember when you were a kid when you tried to chase your shadow? What could you never catch? Unless you were Peter Pan. You could never catch your shadow. The lexicon said that it was also like building your house on sand. Not a good idea. Or how about this? You ever tried to chase the wind? Doesn't work either. We spend our lives, guys, in so many differing ways that's just empty and vain and doesn't mean anything. And so Paul is saying, turn from your vain life, turn from your vain beliefs, turn from your vain sacrifices, turn from wanting to worship us and turn to the one true God. This is a call to repentance and faith in Christ. That's what he's doing. Now, look at the text. That's not all he does. Look at the entry point for the gospel. Turn to a living God. This living God, he says, made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and Gladness. What is Paul doing here? Why would he go there? Because in Greek mythology, there was a completely different explanation for the origin of the world. The gospel starts, guys, with creation. It starts there. Why do you think we live in a culture where the enemy has tried to repackage the origin of the world in a thousand different ways whether it's an islamic belief or whether it's a buddhist belief or whether it's a secular humanist belief it doesn't really matter every false ideology has a differing understanding of creation or the god who created it so what does paul do What's the first domino that has to fall in a very pagan land where it's very spiritually dark? 
He sheds the light on what's called general revelation. The fact that God made the world and that this world that he made it ha is a constant witness to the fact that he exists. So if you're here today and you don't believe that God exists or you're listening today and you don't believe that God exists, look around you. The evidence is literally everywhere. God has given you your body. God has given you your lungs. God has given you air to breathe. God has given you a sun. God has given you the moon. God has given you an atmosphere. God has given you rain. God has given you seasons. God has given you food. God has given you a job. God has given you clothes. God has given you so many things. What do you have that God did not give you? That's what Paul is saying. That's why he starts there. Because he's, he's wanting them to see that a biblical worldview, the right way to understand the world is through the lens of the truth that there is a living God who made all things. And that this living God who made all things is in control and is in charge. And it doesn't really matter what you nor I think about this God. He exists. He doesn't begin to exist when we say he exists or put our faith in him. No, he's always existed. Your opinion doesn't change anything is what I'm trying to say. And neither does mine. Truth is truth. It doesn't become truth just because we believe it. That's what he's doing. He's really doing a kindness to them and he's helping them by saying, look at the world around you. Think about this. For many of us, this is like the ABCs. We learned this at two. We learned this at three. We learned this at four. Jenna, you're teaching this over here in the Kids Connect. Like, we learned this at Keepers, Jeremy and Kim. But for, there, for many people in the world, this is a radical message. There's a God who created all things. That's why he starts there. Now, look at verse 18. The people still are in a fit and a frenzy. Then in verse 19, we have the Jews, the unbelieving Jews visit again and stir up the crowds. I want you to look at verse 19, right in the middle. They persuade the crowds. That means the same stuff that they said to the people in Iconium, they bring with them and they share that same message about Paul and Barnabas again. This time, look what happens. Paul is actually stoned. He's drugged out of the city. They leave him for dead. Verse 20, he wasn't actually dead. I guess they knocked him out, Miss Stacy, somehow, knocked unconscious. He gets up, he goes back to the city, and then he leaves the next day. I want you to hear me carefully. If you're leading a ministry, if you're a pastor, if you're a mom, if you're a dad, whatever influence that you have been given. If you are leading to make people happy or to get applause by men, you're leading for the wrong reason. I want you to think about the fickleness of this crowd. I want you to think about how fickle they are. What do they want to do when, he first, when they first heal this guy? They say they're gods. 
and they, they want to deify them and they, they want to make statues of them, whatever they want to do. They, they, want to, they want to promote them and celebrate them and, and worship them and, and sacrifice them. And then when we sacrifice to them and then when we get to the end of the chapter, what do they actually do? They're so fickle that they've been persuaded by a completely different message and then they try to kill Paul. You see what I'm saying? Hear me carefully, young people, because you don't know what God has for you. Hear me carefully, young people. You don't know what God has for you. Right now, you need a purpose in your heart and in your mind that you will be the kind of person that will lead to fear God only and not live to fear man. Whatever God gives you to do, put God first. Fear Him. Fear him. Do not fall in the trap of fearing man. I beg you. Adults, ditto. Same message. People are like the wind, guys. Their moods and attitudes and opinions, especially in America, change like a, in a moment. The stuff that rages through social media or the stuff that rages on the news, the stuff that everybody gets all hyped up and fired up about, three weeks later, nobody cares no more because they're fired up about something else. You ever notice that? Be careful you're not living for the wrong kingdom. This is why Paul says, Turn from vain, empty things. And sometimes those vain, empty things are more than cars and trucks and houses and jobs. Sometimes those vain, empty things are the fact that we're spending our entire life and leadership trying to please man. You know what John Knox said, Pastor Tom? At the height of the Scottish Reformation, John Knox said, one man alone with God is always in the majority. Those are pretty good odds, Pastor Jim. So I want to encourage you to be that kind of person. Very quickly, let me give you a couple of points of application. This will be very quick. A couple of things to be aware of. This trap will get you, I'm telling you. It will get you. Be careful. Number one, beware of self-exalting. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before the fall. Let's not forget, we've already seen crowds praise one person in the book of Acts. You remember who they praised? King Herod. King Herod almost had the exact same thing happen, a little bit different circumstance, but the crowds begin to praise him and praise him and praise him and praise him. And what does he say? I'm, I, I think it's true. I'm, I guess I'm pretty awesome. And what happens? The Lord kills him. Beware of self-exalting. Best way to, to tell is think about how much you talk about yourself. Number two, beware of living in and living for what people think of you. Beware of living in and living for what people think of you. That's easier said than done. I get it. I get it. Beware of living in and living for what people think of you. That doesn't mean we get the right to be holy jerks. <laughs> That's not the point of Scripture. 
but we're to fear God. Number three, beware of selfish ambition. You know, Paul and Barnabas did not use ministry as a stepping stone to something greater. It's not how it works. There's a reason why most pastors of old stayed in the same church till they died. They were just faithful brothers. Beware of selfish ambition. Beware of self-promotion. Number four, beware of misplaced trust. Make sure that you put your trust in God, not men. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will put our trust in the name of God. That's where our trust needs to be, fellas and ladies, boys and girls. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for the warning that's here. Thank you for the example that's here. Thank you for the lesson that's here. God, I pray if there's anyone that's here today, either listening online or listening in person, that their life is just really for themselves. They act like they're their own God. No one can tell them anything. They do what they want, how they want, when they want, and they use everyone around them for their own pleasure. That's a false God. I pray, God, that in your kindness, what we sang about, and in your mercy, you'll reach down and you'll touch those hearts now, and you'll save them. Father, for those of us that are in the faith, God, help us to be mindful, to be sober, to be vigilant, as 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us, because our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. Truth of the matter is, Paul and Barnabas were vigilant. God, help us to be vigilant. Help us not go to sleep at the will. God, help us not to live for the wrong things, even if it's men's praise. Help us keep all things in perspective and take whatever's set about us to the throne room of God, your throne, Lord, and offer that to you as a thanksgiving. Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we thank you. In Christ, then we pray these things. Amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet as we close with a song. Works. Um, yeah. Sing with us before the throne of God above.